Welcome to the CBC Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Swain. With me today, developer formerly with Playdom and now Sumo Logic, David Carlton. Hello, thanks for having me. Journalist, features writer for Game Ranks, Annie Wright. Hi, thanks for having me. Internet critic with experiencepoints.net, his own podcast, and Moving Pixels, George Albor. Hey, thank you for having me as well. And journalist, developer, and gumshoe, co-writer of the Carmen Sandiego for Facebook, and editor-in-chief at Killscreen, Chris Dolan. Hey there. Well, today we're talking about GDC. Quite late, but second word in the title is distance. (laughs) (laughs) And these four actually participated in that enormous, enormous event. Yeah, it's amazing how large it is, but it sort of feels, but yet so friendly. So you're constantly seeing people that you know, even though there's 15,000 people there that you don't know. It manages to straddle both of those worlds better than anything, both of those size ranges better than anything else I'm, I'm aware of. It's yeah, a home away from home. It felt like leaving summer camp. I mean, I, I know I'm not the only person to have said that, but it was really sad at the end of the week, honestly. Yeah, me too. I always get choked up closing out Moscone at the end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it also seems one of this is like the first year where you could actually attend surreptitiously via Twitter and on and the online presence it had. Absolutely. Yeah. I can see that. A lot of people yeah, a lot of information gets out and you know, the press corps is always really busy filing stories after each talk and trying to get it out quickly. But it's also fun to do it on it is fun to do it on Twitter. You can get a lot of really interesting salient stuff out. I, I know that how I attended most of the panels was via Ben Abraham's <laughs> Twitter stream, just pouring out his opinions as people said stuff on the stage. Nice. You can probably see more talks just paying attention to Twitter than, you know, while you're actually there. Yeah, or I mean, if you're in the wrong talk. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's proved to be one of the most useful tools for so many purposes. And I mean, we used it as a means of finding each other, like when we weren't in the same place, coordinating who was covering what. It was easier than texting and all that stuff. All right, so let's actually talk about the panels, because that was the big highlight of the entire show. I think we can start with the keynote. Satoru Iwata's keynote. Yeah, I watched that online last night, and and I thought, beginning, I said, this isn't as bad as everyone said. Yeah, no, it, it, it was okay for the first half, and then, uh, but as a keynote, it just did not do any sort of job. I mean, a keynote should be bringing everybody together and setting the tone for a conference and having ideas that people are going to be talking about for the next few days and so forth. And it wasn't. It was started off with inoffensive but mostly banalities, and then it turned into a marketing pitch and some what seemed to me fairly misguided positionings of how the industry is evolving. And uh, I actually liked his keynote a couple of years ago because I thought I learned something about how how they develop games at uh, at Nintendo, but not so much this time. And ironically, right after that, there was Clint Hawking gave just a a fantastic talk, which, to me, that was almost more of the keynote. Why don't they give Clint the keynote ever? Is he just not big enough a name? Or I'm sure he's probably going to be getting there. He seems to be getting more opportunities every year and people realize i mean i I think the the keynotes that were only to fill a room that big i feel they have to find someone who's like the president of nintendo or someone really huge like that yeah so it's tough as opposed to like an individual (laughs) developer maybe well right so so last year it was 
last year it was Sid Meier, and so you know, which people it, were annoyed by his talk too, actually. But at least yeah, it had but something it was, in. It was better. Um, and the year before that was Hideo Kojima, but no, well, there's two of them. The year before that, it was Kawada yeah. and Kojima. And Kojima's people said was a bit disappointing as well. Yeah, but at least, so I think that's the kind of developer that now they're willing to have this as keynotes as Sid Meier or Kojima, yeah, a legend Kojima of the industry. Exactly. I think everyone knew that Iwata's talk was disappointing by and large. You know, the moment Reggie Phil Ames came on stage and everyone was like, I'm not really here to see you. There <laughs> you talk about so. Netflix on the Netflix. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was the conversation we expected to see at E3. Yeah. And I, at least we won't have to see it there now. I think that um, his subject matter, in a way, though, Iwata was almost describing the very thing that's probably going to be the reason that someone like Clint Hawking will be delivering the keynote speech in the future. Indie games are starting to become more important. The field is becoming more accessible, and you don't necessarily have to be some giant person to make a, a big impact in it. And I think that some people are kind of upset about that almost. Yeah. yeah, it was almost this veiled threat against when he was saying that, I mean, basically, like, near the end, he kind of obliquely said that all these little games coming out of basements, just made by, like, kind of individual people really cheaply, as opposed to, like, the more fully fleshed indie teams, like you're saying, or that he used to belong to. But, like, you know, he basically seemed to be saying the Angry Birds and Tiny Wings selling those for a dollar on the iPod is going to ruin the industry. <laughs> but not in quite so many words. Yeah, which was such a weird, but it was like that could have been the whole talk was exploring. Uh, well, it couldn't have been, but you know that was sort of the most interesting thing he said, and sort yeah. of his position against that. But and one thing I've forgotten, but now you're reminding me, is that at the very same time as the keynote, or the keynote was at 9 a.m. and maybe this other thing was at 9:30 or 10 a.m. Steve Jobs was doing the launch of the iPad 2, and that was in the Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, which for people not familiar with San Francisco geography means you go upstairs from the keynote, you walk out to the back, you're in a park, you walk to the right, that's where Steve Jobs was. So, <laughs> you know, 50, 100 yards away, plus some amount of vertical distance, we had the old guard of the gaming industry and the new guard that's almost conquering uh, the gaming industry by accident. And Reggie obviously felt uh, pretty threatened by them, given the way he went out of his way to dismiss iPad and iPhone games in, well, in his keynote. With that, with that in mind, I, I don't think anyone was really surprised by the content of what Iwata was saying, right? I mean, he's trying to sell 3DSs that are selling, you know, $40 cartridges as opposed to, you know, the iPhone and the iPad on the all sorts of mobile gaming that sells these games for 99 cents. Of course Iwata's going to be upset by that. Right. Just, it was sort of like at least he addressed something of substance. And, you know, I mean, that yeah. was one of the I don't know if it was like a dominant theme this year, but when you've seen the mobile track and sort of the mobile games become more important every single year. And now this year, you know, just so many so many talks related to it. And yeah, it's sort of like, what do they do? They're wheeling out a, a DS that also has this 3D thing and a couple little gizmos, but doesn't really compete with an iPad in terms of doing anything new. Mm -hmm. Competes in many other ways, of course. But I mean, it's funny because we mentioned maybe the keynote should bring up topics that people are talking about for many days to come. But people really were talking about his talk, not just the fact that it was disappointing, but also <laughs> using it as sort of like an indication 
for the sort of clash between mobile gaming and the future of handheld things like the PSP and the DS. And not even that, but just the larger kind of decentralizing of a lot of the games that we're getting, people were talking about a lot, weren't necessarily coming from places like Nintendo. Not that those games are not still important to all of us, but the indie games in particular seemed just to really shine this year. They got so much attention from everyone and, you know, their booth was just packed constantly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does anyone feel that it may have had a point with the flooding of the market of 99 cents apps that you could end up with a secondary type crash that Nintendo saved the industry from the first time around? Mm-hmm. And that fear of that same type of crash is where a lot of this is coming from? It's, I think it's, it's mainly fear possible. for his own market. <laughs> really? I interpret it as having more to do with that anyway. I think he was short-sighted, but I don't think the fear is completely misplaced. It's the same fear addressed by people who think that pirating, for example, will lead to a certain approach to how people consume games or films or music or whatever. Sure, and it is really difficult to predict things like that. You know, all you can do is look at the way things have gone in the past, but with the the field that technology evolves so rapidly, it is really difficult to say, to speculate. And I guess the interesting thing about Nintendo's positioning there is, just from a purely economic point of view, there's this question of, okay, you're selling a, a $40 game, and if you can sell 10 times as many copies of that game as a $5 game, then you've come out ahead on two levels. One is you make slightly more money, and the second, which we all want our games to be played by people, so ten times as many people playing your game is a virtue itself. And But Nintendo is still largely in the physical distribution space where you can't experiment with pricing that way. And mm-hmm. so they present this as something scary and... The pricing changes yet again when your things are down at a dollar, because then you have to make sell 50 times as many copies, and that's a hard thing to do. But as long as you're dependent on physical media, it's hard to have that kind of experiments at all. And it's it's weird that, I mean, the 3DS, of course, does have a, a digital download store, but they, they didn't do a great job with that in the last generation. And I think the 3DS download store is not available at launch, is my impression. I don't have a 3DS to verify that myself. And so they are still being caught somewhat flat-footed in that regard. Do do any of you own a 3DS? (laughs) Not yet. No. No. Nope. (laughs) I'd have to replace my DS lights holding up, and I don't. it's not worth replacing it. Yeah. Watch 3D movie trailers or whatever. Whereas uh, I just got myself a new high-end laptop. There's no way I'm buying any more hardware. <laughs> we did buy an iPad too, so now our house has two iPads. It, it has three DS of the old style DSs, but that's just screens keep on breaking. So at this point, I actually most of my handheld gaming is is on my phone. So. I don't know, maybe his fears are legitimate. I've played a lot of Tiny Wings over the last month or so. It's a really good game. We were playing that uh, while we were waiting for his talk to begin, and we were both joking, <laughs> like, sitting there joking, like, you know, he should try this, because it's actually really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, when the iPhone came out, I really was underwhelmed by the quality of games. But this year, I've, I've spent a lot of time on both Tiny Wings and Game Dev Story, and those work great on the phone. So, uh, yeah, there are a number like of them. Scarlet. Mm, yeah, I really yeah, need that's to do cool. that. 
That's a cool adventure. It's funny, like last year it seemed like one of the big themes at GDC was Farmville, and people were worried about Zynga taking over, and there was some friction around all that. And I felt like by the end of the year, in terms of Angry Birds, it kind of surpassed that, both in the popular consciousness. It was so big, and so many people had it on their phones, and that seemed to be the thing that was bringing non-gamers into gaming. The people who never really thought of themselves as someone who played video games would still have Angry Birds and sort of play it while they were waiting for the burrito. And it was sort of nice this year to see there's still some tension and things about Zynga, but like it's always funny seeing Frank Lance kind of refer to himself as being at Area Code. Like It seemed like he couldn't quite bring himself to say Zynga New York, which I understand and respect. But he was <laughs> it, it was not the same as last year. Last year was sort of people were really worried about it. And this year it's sort of like, no, I think Angry Birds sort of helped cut that off from dominating the world. To be fair, he did give credit to Angry Birds during the talk. Mm-hmm. And what do you mean? Yes. Yeah. Actually, on that point, because he also did a few digs at social games and how that social network games aren't really social. And I kind of agreed with that point. Yeah, I, I can see that because they do, you know, more so than, than actually some other types of games where MMOs and stuff, that also can be anti-social or social in turns. But a lot of social gaming kind of taps into us wanting to kick our friends' butts I got to get more cows than Bob or something. And it's sometimes okay, but I don't know. I think sometimes it also kind of turns us into jerks if we're not (laughs) aware of it. Uh, I was just going to say, I find Minecraft far more social than any competitive game that comes around. And that's a Lego simulator. But I would agree with that. Yeah, I think social game, it's mostly just treated as a genre label. And a lot of genre labels are not very good. So I'd be perfectly happy for people to use the term Facebook game, except games like that are on other platforms as well. But, you know, there's a concept out there that we need a a label for, but focusing too much on the meaning of the word social, uh, that doesn't interest me all that much. Though I, I will say that So I used to think that social games were maybe not all that social, but I've had an interesting experience since I left Playdom, which is, you know, I'm still playing, like, Sorority Life, for example, the game that I worked on and some of Playdom's other games, and it is actually kind of nice to get these little game requests from my former coworkers. Like, there's a little bit of a sense of connection that would be completely absent if we weren't playing those games. So ironically, I'm actually seeing more of the social virtues uh, of those games now that I'm not working on them than when I was working on them. I want to point out for people who maybe didn't see Iwata's talk, he was positioning Nintendo as the founders of social games based upon couch multiplayer, right? Local (laughs) multiplayer. So, you know, I I agree with David here. I think it's just an issue of semantics. Iwata is trying to frame the socialness of social games so that Nintendo is the ones who are providing the true sociability in those experiences. And definitely, I mean, Pokemon was just hugely important in the advance of possibilities of sociability in video games. No question about also, that. Also, you could say the adventure of transmedia right there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I still give it to Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But speaking of social games, is another thing I wanted to talk about was the social game developers rant. Good segue. I thought so. <laughs> because uh, last year it was like everyone was digging on the, the social game developers, everyone was taking their pot shots, and now uh, you have Eric Zimmerman setting up a talk where they get a chance to rant back. Yeah. And then what was very interesting was how Brenda Brathwaite gave the first rant, and she started off by explicitly saying, I reject the title of this rant panel, that she does not want to 
she, she says, you know, we're we're all game developers, and she doesn't want it to be an us versus them with each side taking turns taking pot shots. We're all in this together. And then she went into you know history lesson of how we've seen this over the years of every new platform being attacked by the old guard. And also that games are still frequently attacked by people outside of us. So if you want, if there's going to be an us versus them, uh, the us should be game developers as a whole, and the them should be people who want to pass bills designating video games as addictive substances and such. <laughs> that so was an inspirational was, talk. Yeah. And, when the, and you stand up and listen when the developer wizardry <laughs> says that you reject the title of the panel. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, yeah, there's a lot of questioning of social games on that panel, so it was far from social game boosterism. I mean, you expect Ian Bogus is there to attack social games, I guess. But uh, Scott Siegel's rant was great, too, saying social games had a lot of promise uh, up until a couple years ago. And then Farmtown came along and was incredibly popular. And then, of course, Farmville copied a, a lot of those ideas and further refined them. And making this case that we've had a lot of stagnation, one of the things which was really striking to me as I was, I was just watching that again, is he put up this slide saying in 2000 and, you know, before Farmtown came along, if a sample of 100 social games, only three of them had gift requests that you could send to fellow, you know, fellow players or maybe your friends who aren't playing. And now that is completely turned on its head, whereas where if you 100 social games and you'll find you know, three weirdos that don't have gift requests, but every other one does. And, hmm. you know, maybe gift requests are a good thing, maybe they're a bad thing, but that kind of monoculture towards approaches to games is dangerous. Chris, you've been oddly silent up till now. <laughs> I, I missed the social games rant, so... Uh. It was a good response because I just remember there being so much tension against Farmville last year. And it's funny because David and I talked about this a while ago. I kind of I had to apologize to him because I kind of made a crack about social games and you know <laughs> the practices and sort of the the worst of the breed and sort of the worst of the practices. And then I ended up doing some writing for one and saw it kind of differently. It's a growing field. It's sort of like I think people emphasize the gift requests and some of the things that are a little more cynical about it and a little more viral and don't emphasize enough the fact that a lot of the games are getting more complex, adding more functionality and trying to provide a deeper experience. So realizing that's what the market hasn't done as much of yet. So the rain back. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I didn't have a conclusion. Those are sort of my thoughts. <laughs> I wish I'd just... seen the rant talk because it would have been interesting to see that ra those reactions. It felt very much like a much-needed reassurance to people who were concerned about social games because, you know, people like Ian and Sean and, and Brenda were coming up and saying, I take my development of social games very seriously, and I love games, and I would never do anything to intentionally spoil the medium and this genre in particular. So for someone who has been a little paranoid on the paranoid side of what Farmtown and Farmville are doing for social games, it was comforting. Well, oh, but Brenda... No, sorry, go. One thought was, it's interesting, too, because I feel like we keep saying, we keep referring to this like not ruining games, not ruining games with mobile stuff, not ruining games with small downloads yeah. Or, yeah. or even indies or social games. It's like, but what are we ruining? Like, it just sort of made me realize that yeah. because I don't spend a lot of time playing $60 Xbox titles right now because I just don't have a lot of time at the moment. And I'd much rather play smaller games. And the ecosystem of what these quote-unquote smaller games is gets broader and deeper and more interesting all the time. 
I feel like maybe that's one of the things GDC is changing to reflect is that there are, you know, the people who ship the really successful $60 titles are very prominent and it's like they're the most successful people, but it's so much broader than that. And I think maybe that's sort of the, if that's still the gold standard of like, well, you know, we're eating into the $60 Xbox title, then maybe that's not such a bad thing. Yeah. I wonder, too, the sentiment, obviously we've all heard that like social gaming is ruining games, blah, blah, blah. I see that only in two places, really. You know, we've all made Farmville jokes and et cetera, but the big developers, but also most of the common places where I hear people complaining about that, the old guard of gamer culture is not necessarily old people. It, it's the idea that yeah. the only people who play games are teenage boys. Yeah. And so... I think that there's a tendency to be very protective of that idea as gamer culture being somewhat exclusive because people at one point found refuge there. Like if they weren't comfortable in other niches, that was like a safe place and they don't like the fact that moms play this and old people play this and people who are not them, even though obviously that's only just a tiny facet of gamers at this point. And I think maybe that is not responsible for the attitude, but I want to think that it ties in maybe just a little bit. Yeah. I agree, but I think there's also another group who are, are quite the opposite, who think that games can do a lot, and there maybe a lot of them are indie developers or people working on, like Chris was saying, social games or other types of smaller games that are showing a lot of depth these days. And I think mm-hmm. it's not just a fear that new people are playing social games and they're encroaching in our space, but I think there's a fear that social games like like Farmville are becoming representative oh, of, yeah, I see what of you're the field. Yeah. So, like, you know, it's, it's going to make it like people are going to see that and think that, oh, well, it's stupid or something and not. Yeah. Really- like, so I don't know. I think, David, you mentioned his name was Sean. You're talking about the, the younger gentleman who was at the social Scott, rant back, right? Scott. 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 Yeah. Um, his talk it was very hostile. He was being very angry and pushing back. And it was good and exciting. But, you know, I think that hostility was coming from that place where yeah. he's representing people who have been working on making social games something amazing. And now he sees people equating it with Farmville and those types of games, and he was rightfully angry about that. The same sort of backlash against McGonagall and and her whole thing. Even though a lot of people are on board with her, they think that some of the things that she's expressing with it are taking away from the idea rather than contributing to it, maybe. Did anyone have any thoughts on that? Oh, sorry. At the end of Brenda's (laughs) rant, you heard the word 43-year-old woman gamer tossed around a lot at GDC, and she was one of the people who brought it up at the end where – I think it's just wonderful that the audience for games is much broader than it used to be, and I think there's no question, but like Annie said, there's a a lot of traditional gamer culture is designed for people who are – traditional games are designed for a small subset of of the audience, and so it's great that there are games that 43-year-old women are happy to play, but then we also have Brenda Brathwaite up there who is female, and I don't know if she's exactly 43 years old, but based on the comments that she made, it wouldn't actually surprise me if she was, saying, okay, let's make as good, just because 43-year-old women are playing Farmville, that does not mean that that's the game that they will find the most appealing. And so as game designers, we have to work really hard to design the best games possible for them, because as she put it, they deserve a 
great game too. And, oh, Dave. Uh, I'm sorry. This. Uh, Are you gonna have to bleep uh, that 40, out? Forty-nine yeah. minutes and thirteen seconds in. Can we not swear on this? We want to keep it clean, iTunes. Oh. <laughs> I had no idea. Right, and, and I was so like, I'm, little kids are going to be listening to this. Like, <laughs> this is why we use an explicit tag on all of our podcasts. Yeah, I, I'm not sure, but I think the consensus we want to keep the clean tag on or whatever. Nice. Okay. So it's just happy coincidence that none of us have Sworn said the f bomb or something. <laughs> I've been bottling it in. I figured it was like, oh, people are intelligent discussion. Intelligent discussion doesn't need expletives. So. <laughs> I, I swear like a sailor in real life. It's terrible. <laughs> I'm sure we all do. But. Intelligent discussion <laughs> quoting Brenda Brathwaite's GDC talks is actually going to include some amount of profanity. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's one of her virtues, I, I should, say. should we just start saying beep out loud instead of... <laughs> I, I have a censor bleep saved. <laughs> you mentioned a certain amount of swearing and stuff. I remember the first time I saw her speak at GDC was actually 2006 when she was really involved in the sex SIG, the sex yeah. special interest group. She led a couple roundtables of people who were in the kind of adult game development section, which has never been a very big segment and continues not to be. I went to see her because I had written an article about it and I thought it was really interesting and she was awesome and some of the people there were really interesting, but it was also it was kind of a creepy vibe in that room. <laughs> we're all sort of trying to take it very seriously, but then you've got like you know, all these like red light district game people in there and talking about stuff. And, it was just, and of course it was like entirely dudes. It was all but two people and there were dudes, which is even worse than for GDC. So it was a little creepy, but she yeah. really made the most of it. So Good for her. Yeah. <laughs> Brought a lot of light to an interesting segment that ended up not really taking off that much. Mm. Uh, another transition. Speaking of Brenda Brathwaite, she had her own talk. Which is the highest, the highest rated this year, wasn't it? I think they just announced that's what my Twitter feed tells me, yes. Wow. I wouldn't doubt it, because I found her Meaning is the Mechanic series of games absolutely fascinating, and I wish that I could at least play them or prototype them at least once. Right, they're meant to be played, but they're not really distributed, which is something I didn't understand about Train. when she's, I got to see her talk about Train last year, and it was an amazing talk, and I hadn't realized that she really did have people sit there playing it, and when they played it, she didn't tell them what it meant. And so watching the reactions of people, either they would figure it out, and maybe then the other players didn't, or just seeing how they took it after she sort of explained the concept at the end, or I guess after it's revealed at the end, really fascinating. And it made me, yeah, it's, it's almost too bad that there aren't more opportunities to kind of put it in front of people. Although if you put it in front of people now, then you'd have to tell them, oh, it's that game train, and everyone would be in on it. And sort of the point was that it they make, weren't. It makes me wonder, in the mid-90s, if the secret of it would have lasted longer, just because the internet wasn't that just makes everyone knows about anyone who's plugged in or who'd want to go out of their way to play it knows the secret. But that actually happened at, uh, I believe it was uh, San Francisco or somewhere in California where she was demoing it at some convention and people were just going through the motions. One guy actually got I think it's like you have to get 60 of the little figures, and he was at 53. And it seems like everyone there knew what the game was, and they were playing it fully mechanically as if it was just any other game. And she was pretty horrified by it, that <laughs> the mechanics were breaking down by someone who was just deliberately doing it. But thankfully, near the end of the game, the guy had like three little figures to go. He just stood up yeah, I'm not, and just said, I'm not going to be the first one to finish train, and just walked away. <laughs> and he had the winning cards in his hand. He just refused to finish. He didn't want that label attached to him. It's like taunting the system. <laughs> in a way, this other guy was like, so does that mean I win? Is it, I don't want to win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the things that this talk 
raised al- along those lines for me is so she the train is part of a six game series and for a lot of the other topics of the games they're a lot more theoretical for me they're in there's something that happened centuries ago rather than decades ago and there's something that we haven't been reading literature about constantly and seeing movies about constantly so i'm curious for example she wrote a game about the Cromwell's invasion of Ireland, and I know nothing about the Cromwell's invasion of Ireland, and I'm perfectly willing to believe that it was a tragic, horrific thing. But I think as a player of playing Train, I I, I almost can't imagine myself playing that, whereas with something that's that's equally horrible, I can easily imagine myself playing it and kind of going along with the rules. And But I can also imagine that going through the game would make it much more personal, and I would Mm -hmm. come out of the experience of playing her Ireland game a a better person than I was going in. Well, you think like it makes you. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) You go. Between Train and One Moves for Each of Us, the one she hasn't finished with 50,000 pieces, those I can see how mechanically can actually affect you. It's just the others is like there are so few details that unless you go to one of these talks or see them in one of the museums where she plays them, and she hasn't come to New York for some reason, is that I don't see how the mechanics play into the idea, like the slave trade game. That I, can, that I know about, that we studied extensively in school, but there's so few details I don't know. Right, so I was just rewatching the talk, and so she talked about how that one came out of is exactly from its being studied in school that her daughter, I think she said she has daughters who are, I don't can't remember if seven years old at the time, or anyways, elementary school, had come home talking about this, and according to her, basically it had been presented as almost like the Middle Passage slave ships, as almost like a cruise, and a very unfortunate thing happened when people landed, but then Abraham Lincoln fixed that, and everything's all fine and dandy. And so she was kind of horrified by by this and so just judging from the pictures there the i believe the in train the figures are all yellow but whereas in i don't have the name written down for the middle passage game but the the figures are in different colors based on their family groups and so that apparently to her daughter brought home much more strongly that you know families were being ripped apart as part of this and uh would be quite surprised if there wasn't a a death mechanic as part of the slave ship aspect to the game and but yeah I, i would like to to see more details about what the rules are it's interesting, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think she's ever actually led a demonstration of one of her games at GDC. And I know they, there's a board game night Sunday night, but that wouldn't really be the appropriate venue. That's actually just for people to have fun and drink, but, but that, would, that would be something that would be really cool. Yeah. yeah. The thing is, she's also said that none of these games have the ability to be replicated in any forget mass market mean, but even a niche mean because they're apparently so unique. And in the way for One Falls of Each of Us with 50,000 moving pieces, that I can sort of understand. <laughs> but uh, Train seems very replicatable and especially... Broken glass? Yeah, it does have broken glass as the base. Yeah, it's a work of art. I mean, it's not meant for meant yeah. to be copied. And the uh, the rules were typed on a typewriter that was used by uh, SS agents. Yeah, that's that's very difficult to replicate. I know. It just seems a little counterintuitive if it's part of a series called The Mechanic is the Message. 
Yes. Which is replicatable. Yeah, but we'll. I think we'll give it to her. <laughs> I mean, I think if we get some meaning from just her explanation of the mechanics and the types of reactions that people have, because it's almost like, as viewers, her intent is for us to see what sorts of values those games can bring up with the players, whether or not we're the ones playing them. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think whether you're the literal person having the experience or you're just watching someone have the experience. I mean, if we're watching someone play a game, we're sort of, uh, this is kind of a, a leap, but it seems like if we're meant to just be watching a demonstration, we're sort of also meant to empathize with the player of the game. Mm-hmm. And yeah, uh, yeah, sorry, that's not a full <laughs> <one side. laughs> Well, I, I think Brenda does something really interesting with her games, at least with trains, certainly. And that's, she kind of postpones systems mastery intentionally so that by the time you realize the components of what you're doing completely that's when the emotion strikes you know she doesn't encourage you to understand the intricacies of train the moment you start playing train that's not the point so she's like kind of exploiting that black box dilemma intentionally to make it so that you have an emotional reaction and as people who think critically about the game or know how that system works she can't exploit us anymore she can't do that to us because we already know what that system is composed of does that make sense i wonder yeah. if it couldn't still in fact as even for someone who knows because the, the mark of a great work of art is even after so many viewings and after so much knowledge about it it still has profound effects i, I think it does i think it just has different effects if you get what I'm saying. It's almost like watching a movie a second time, right? You're never going to have that same first experience, but it doesn't mean you're not going to get something valuable out of it. Maybe the second time around, you you concentrate more on how it was put together as opposed to experiencing it purely as the viewer or the player. You think more about how the person, the choices that they made in its delivery and that sort of thing. It's interesting now that I think about that this is the flip side of what Iwata was afraid of in his talk that the sweet spot for his world of games is the 40 to 60 dollar game but they're still mass market and you know you can get them if you want and then he's afraid of the one dollar games without anybody or free games that you can get very easily and then brenda is going very hard in the other direction saying you forget games that cost 60 dollars or or the 300 dollars that i just spent on a rock band guitar here's a game that no matter how much money you want to buy she's not going to sell you a copy of it yeah for everything money can't buy <laughs> Before I don't I, maybe we're gonna switch soon to something. I just want to her quote that when she says where there is human on human tragedy, there's always a system. I want to say how much I love that quote. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, is when I first heard her name, I did some, re- and this was years ago. I knew her only as a person who worked on Wizardry. I later learned that she was one of the main people who drove that game forward. And sure, in the back of my mind, that yes, that, that's impressive. And only now, after some research on it, Annie, you know what I'm talking about, I've learned, oh my god, this is probably one of the most important computer games ever made, just given by its influence power. And the more I hear her talk, the more I read her, about her, the more I read from her, she is one of the probably the best minds in the industry. She's becoming one of those figures like Clint Hawking, who you always want to hear talk. You always want to hear what they have to say. Yeah. yeah. 
Unfortunately, she's remarkably generous. I think she participated in seven talks or sessions at GDC this year, which is yeah, I saw her name pop up <laughs> on those lists and, quite a lot. And I, you know, I only went to three or four of those, but I can attest that she was not phoning <laughs> it in on any of the ones that I went to. I mean, far, far from it. Yeah. It's like you're wandering around Moscone like a deadhead, like man, I gotta see all their concerts. <laughs> it did kind of feel like being at a music festival or something back in high school all the people that you think are just they're all walking around there and like you, the you might get to play a board game with them later or you know have a beer or something it's, it is mind-blowing yeah and so accessible it is amazing i gotta hand to her the one thing is like yeah you, you bring out that she that she gave at least five talks seven talks and they were all good I have to rep sometimes for the people who are not natural speakers and not natural communicators. Absolutely. That when you get them up there, are still they have so much to say. I think at GC you see a lot of the same names because some of these people are just so exceptionally good at communicating and inspiring, which are the main goals. I got say, just sort of a quick point of contrast. I saw Mark Ambeder's talk. He's from Valve and he works in their playtest lab and does all these experiments with using biofeedback and using other ways of collecting data on players. So he'll be watching eye movements and tracking how much you sweat and your heart rate and all these other things, and gave this just completely, utterly fascinating talk about all the different things he's experimenting with, all the ways they're affecting the mechanics, when some of them might be actually commercially available in the marketplace within Valve games and stuff, and just totally fascinating. But, like, he was a good speaker, but it's not like he's up there as, like, sort of this natural evangelist communicator, like a James McGonagall well, type. I mean, he, like, ran through that. He, he gave, like, three hours of information in one hour. <laughs> Yeah. I'm going to push back against the natural thing. I, I have no idea what Brenda Brathwaite was like as a speaker 20 years ago, but my guess is that she's put in a huge amount of work still for every talk that she gives and to oh, yeah, I uh, improve her ability for doing that. So Yeah, I don't mean that she didn't work to become such an exceptional communicator. Yeah, that was the wrong word. But, I mean, just my point that, like, some of the people are just so good at this and really know how to, like, have gotten to the point of just being so good at giving these talks that are informative. And then some people, you will still get these GDC talks where it's someone who just, like, crawls out of the lab just data dumps you, changes your life, and then just goes right back to the lab. Yeah. I wonder if they're intimidated by people like Brenda. It would probably well, be I mean, hard I to would be. against her. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, some of the, some of the randomness you see at GDC is really amazing. Like, I just went to a talk about hybrid scoring and the music for Need to Speed 2. And there was these music samples and they were talking about the process and that was all fascinating. And then the, he was, and then one of the speakers, the second speaker comes up and he puts up this slide that's about the four noble truths of Buddhism, you know, all life is suffering. <laughs> <laughs> like, where the hell, I'm sorry, where is that coming from? And he didn't really come back to it later. It was just kind of a random thing. And then, you know, 10 minutes later in his talk, he's saying, oh, and this wasn't going well, and I was really burnt out, so I just took three days, No, didn't accept any phone calls, and then I went to my backyard and I recorded the sounds of bees that were buzzing around, and he played us, <laughs> you know, this tape of remixed, like, bee noises, and, oh, and it was just awesome. fascinating. So that that's actually kind of different from the, you know, Mike Ambinder geek crawling out of a lab. That was like, this is just you know, this guy who has thoughts running through his mind. That Buddhism and need for speed. Is there anything else that GDC can't provide? <laughs> it's, I mean, it's amazing. A testament to the diversity of people there. Definitely. And if it's the bee noise sample music that I think you're talking about, it's actually pretty amazing. You can hear some of it on YouTube. I, I don't know the exact link. But, yeah, they're recording the bees in the backyard. If it is what I think it is, very listenable and just really cool, honestly. Yeah, I was impressed. 
Yeah, and that's a reminder of GDC. I certainly gravitate towards big games and big names, but there's a lot of talks going on, and you can. It would be interesting some year to just have a GDC schedule determined by rolling dice. And I think I probably wouldn't enjoy it quite as much as I do with my current GDC schedule, but I'm sure that I would run into interesting surprises uh, more often than not by doing that. Well, I can't imagine it being any worse with double bookings than this one was. Yeah. The Google Calendar was pretty absurd, honestly. Like it just looked like a solid block of red the entire week. <laughs> and of course, you gotta factor in travel time between rooms. Yeah, that was injudicious of me. Unfortunately, I had to miss yeah. one. Third floor Moscone West down to uh, the deep Moscone South is a pretty long haul. Yeah, yeah. yeah. definitely have to pack, pack some yaks and get your water. Yeah. And roll I sure about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this year they didn't leave sp- a spot for you to eat lunch, which was an interesting choice. But... <laughs> yeah. I mean, there oh, was uh... a cafeteria area, sort of, but it was the Wi-Fi wasn't. You couldn't really work in there, so yeah. it was it made it difficult. Well, uh, David, another panel you wanted to talk about was Eric Chahi's Another World postmortem. Yeah, that was really something. So. The only reason why I went to that was we played Another World in the Vintage Game Club about sometime over the last year. And maybe other people are more familiar with this game than I am, but I came out of that experience just really blown away from the game because more than any other game that I can think of, it doesn't hit you over the head with repeating the system. So it has a few mechanics. You know, there's a few things you can do with the weapon and and the tools you have. And then once you've proven that you can master one way of using those, any other game that I could think of would then have you attack enemies in the same way for the next two hours before moving your on. Whereas in another world, the very next enemy has you interacting, dealing with it, or solving the environmental puzzle just in a different way. And so I went to the talk, and I don't know if any of the rest of you went. I can monologue about it. It's on the GDC vault. All the postmortems are on the GDC vault. That's right. They're they're all all free. Yeah. Yeah, I I got to catch that, too. He wasn't, as we said about, like, people who aren't good at speaking, he was a little stilted in the beginning, but he got better once he got rolling. It really makes me want to go out, buy the game, and play it. <laughs> I, I've never played it either, and I and yet I Neither. enjoyed his talk so much. It's available in good old games, and it'll take maybe five hours to play through. Someone said two on Twitter, and then someone just like came right back and he says you're joke. Two hours if you actually know what you what to do. You know, if you're the sort of person who replays the game every year, then sure, two hours. If it's your first time playing it, it took me five to seven hours. Or something Sounds like, like that. Portal. Yeah, but it seems like just what came out of it, it when he made it, what, was it ninety two, ninety one when he was working on it? It seems like eighty nine. He started work in December, and he's just started work in '89, yeah. And, and it didn't was... come out until like '93. I'm kind of ignorant of Chahi. Has he done much since? I'm not aware of any games between that. He's currently working on a project called Dust, a, a game called Dust. Oh, but I'm I'm not wor- uh, aware of of other games that he's done. Yeah, so, he so a... it's a, the talk itself, it was really interesting. Like he was talking about the tools that he developed. So for, first, this was. 89, uh, he wanted to, that was 2D art uh, era rather than a 3D art era. So, but he really wanted to use polygons and 
I, one of my favorite parts of the talk was when he was talking about how he was obsessed with polygons. So uh, he said, and I would pick up a potato and I would imagine what the potato would look like. <laughs> I, I love that line. Just great because, you know, we've all been there when there's something we're obsessed with and just every, we, see, we see the whole world, you know, through that. But, um, yeah. what, but what was truly amazing is that it was sort of the improv way of creation because he, he did the entire game in chronological order and then this story element came out of this and he wanted yeah. to expand on this element. And it seemed like – and he – then came all with processes and concepts and it seems like we're just now in the mainstream i guess you could say critical sphere or developers are now just coming to these concepts that he came to accidentally back in 89 and 91 my favorite yeah, part about the chronological thing was he said and at the end he was exhausted and then of course in the game that's why lester he said that's probably why lester's almost dying at the end of the game where it's it's not a triumphant ending at all you, you barely survive and then you're you're and then buddy it's funny too I liked with so much emphasis now on the playtesting and on how many people are involved in making games and testing games and making sure everything's smoothed out and doing 80 patches the week it releases some of the postmortems I liked how they would talk about that they just kind of felt their way through it and the other one, the, the Maniac Mansion talk, you know, Ron Gilbert was saying, they made this brilliant game. They made some mistakes that would seem kind of obvious today. There are a lot of dead ends you can run into. There are a lot of other things that just don't work. If you do the wrong thing, you can get these frustrating outcomes. And it's just they didn't think about it because they just didn't run into them when they were developing. And so it was sort of like making games through just sort of inspiration and intuition, and then it came out well. And, of course, millions of other games were made during that time that were just horrible. But those were the good <laughs> ones. And it just was, yeah, some small team the creators just cranking it out um the other thing that always cracks me up is how all these people were just so you know making their own tools i mean like the chai made his own polygon editor and his own semi-interpreted language in order yeah. to make the game like why yeah. wouldn't you go do that right you know because <laughs> <laughs> it's time and, uh, and i if i could just bring up jordan mechner on the original prince of persia that was another wonderful talk that you can also find, and his entire process, because he's like, we all know he rotoscoped it. We don't know how he rotoscoped it. And it was, and it apparently it was a five-step process of, because unlike today where you just plug the video camera into your computer, he had to figure out how to get it on the computer, which it was the most amazing process. And he bought the camera and returned it the next day, just he got <laughs> his film. Then he had to project it onto a computer screen. Then he had to, like, draw it, then he had to scan the draw, and then he had to fill out frame by frame, like a cellophane drawing, then he had to scan the drawing into the computer image, then he had to string them together so he'd have the animation, and it's like, he's making this up as he goes, and then he has to, okay, now that I have this, I have to build my own ed level editor, which eventually didn't get used as much, but it helped him create the game. Then he had to, you realize he's doing this step by step. He's stumbling through it. He has no idea what he's doing. And it was just entertaining to watch this process happen. He has to figure out every last detail by himself. And I, the day before I'd gone to the Eric Chahi talk, the last talk that I went to the previous day was one on the design of the puzzles in Limbo. And I swear I was having just a total deja vu in Eric Chahi's talk because the Limbo people were doing the exact same thing where they had their custom editor for their puzzles and their little interpreted language and how they could tweak something in the editor and immediately play through it in the game. And it's still going on today. I'm no I've been noticing a pattern where it seems that we're all all this stuff that's happening, we're relearning what, like, the greats coming out of the 80s had already figured out, but there wasn't any internet to, for them to 
splurge their discoveries online or even a GDC where they could explain it to other people and pass down the knowledge. The, and every- the, sorry, go ahead. Go, go, no, finish. I was just going to say, uh, the interesting thing about Will Wright's postmortem, I thought, was that he pointed out these mistakes that he made, but he didn't seem inclined to go back and fix them. Like, he didn't feel apologetic about it, it seemed. It was very much like, there are more things that I'm busy with. There are other things that are interest me, or sorry, there are other things that are interesting to me. And I may make mistakes along the way, but that's just kind of what you do. So it almost felt like there wasn't a need to go back. Leaving the mistakes there visibly also, that means that everyone can see them and learn from them. It's almost more useful, at least as an education tool, to have them remain visible. And it's nice to have rough edges. Like I almost reading, I think, Clive Thompson's article in Wired about Halo 3 and all the playtesting they did and how they smoothed over every rough edge. And I was kind of like, after I finished the game, I was kind of like, maybe that's why I can't remember a single thing that just happened. There <laughs> was just nothing that was where you're kind of stuck on something like, oh, and then you get past it and it just... Yeah. As a player, the postmortems are incredibly enriching because you kind of have to re-examine everything that you experienced while you were playing the game. I know some people described Chahi's talk as if as if his experience making the game is the game, that playing through it is playing through the creation of it in some ways, which is really interesting. And, you know, that's not something I would have ever thought about or encountered had I not been aware of his talk. Another thing, I, I hate to keep splurging around, but the postmortem of Doom. I've heard uh, John Romero talk about Doom before, and just hearing him explain a few things that he did, it was like, oh my god, this didn't dawn on me, but now I, I can't not see these design choices and how it just changed the entire game. You hear people say, Doom changed the game forever. It was different than every possible thing, but you don't realize how until someone points out the details. Bring up something that's unrelated, so if you're going to continue off of that, then do so. No, I was just going to say, this is why I would love to see postmortems built into full titles. It'd be really fun to... Director's you know. commentary? Yeah, director, I mean, you know, Friction did it with uh, Amnesia, and it's really cool going through it and hearing them talk about things that worked and didn't work immediately after playing, you know, having that on, on hand. Valve does it's that sometimes. There were some... Sorry, what? Oh, just say <laughs> Valve had some also in Half-Life and Portal. Yeah, and Valve's the their Left 4 Dead 2 commentary is really interesting. So anyway, back to Eric Chahi's talk, there's just one thing that the funniest bit in the talk was when he was negotiating for the publishing rights in for the American version of it. <laughs> yeah. And then he was going back and forth with Interplay about the music because they wanted to change it. And he really didn't want them to do that. And so and this was the early 90s. So they, they weren't doing this via email or even phone calls because those were kind of expensive. They were sending fax messages back and forth. And, and, and so all of a sudden the audience kind of chuckled like, huh, fax messages. But then yeah, apparently, the 90s. yeah, one, <laughs> one, I guess it was maybe it was morning in, in France, but it was at night in the U.S. What Eric did was he took a strip of paper and he just wrote in big words on it, keep the original intro music. And he stuck it in a fax machine, and then he taped the edges of the paper together. So it was just looping through the fax machine over and over again. And so then when Interplay <laughs> came into their offices the next morning, they just had, you know, all the paper in the fax the machine. I was surprised the roll didn't run out. Yeah, that was... Uh, <laughs> I laughed so hard, I'm pretty sure I woke up the house. I, I yeah. didn't do that. Yeah, Although he didn't... It didn't work, right? They they ended up replacing the music anyway. No, no. no what the, happened? They didn't replace the music, but the reason was because, according to the legal agreement that they signed, they had to get permission from the original publisher to do so. And the, yeah, they the, stepped the, in. The, the the, so the original publisher, Delphine, yeah. saved. Yeah, the day. so it was a great story, but it was the copyright lawyers that saved the day on I this see. point. Yeah. You should still probably not piss off your publisher. 
Oh no, it wasn't his publisher. It was the reprint. Ah, uh, yes, the distributor. So, <laughs> well, maybe this is why he hadn't done any games, or <laughs> whether he hadn't hadn't done any for. Oh, uh, I, I sent a link in the chat. He's had a few titles since then. So okay, so Heart of Darkness in 1998. That's really only one game between another and world. Amiga and Amiga Classic Four, but from Dust, that's, that one's fun. I actually know about. Yeah, and the Amiga Classics must be just a reprint of his earlier games, is my guess. Yeah, he was very prolific in the 80s. But From Dust looks very interesting. The art style, if nothing else. I haven't seen much about the gameplay yet. If anything else, we didn't. Anyone else wants to go over anything else you saw? Hmm. There was just so much. It's it's hard yeah. to come up with something on the spot. The Lucas Arts trifecta. They were all great. But mm. yeah, so exciting to see where that leads. Yeah. yeah. As long as, uh, that was Hawking, Warch, and Hudson. Hudson. Yeah. 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 We'll see how much freedom George Lucas gives them. I think as long as it doesn't have the word Star Wars in there, I don't think it's much of a problem because he doesn't it, seem yeah. to dip his fingers into anything. It might have the word. I mean, I was telling someone this uh, after seeing Hudson's talk, but as far as I understand, the last non-Star Wars game LucasArts did was Lucidity for XBLA, and that was kind of a flop. So I can't imagine they would be so willing to take another risk. But well, those are great Lucid- minds. I think Lucidity flopped because they didn't advertise the damn thing. That could be. Because I found it like when it came on a Steam sale and was ultra cheap, and it was, that's the only way I ever heard of it. Mm-hmm. I've never heard of that. It's not great, so... <laughs> okay. Time saved, thank you. <laughs> so, yes, of course. Of course, the, the LucasArts trifecta, as I will now call them, did not work on that, so... Right, right. Warch's identity bubble was... Someone brought that up earlier during the setup of this. I didn't get a chance to read it, but some of you did, I think. Yeah, I did. I missed that one. But... I did, too. I, he's got annotated slides online, which are have a lot of information. I, it's, it's very interesting. So I wasn't at the talk, but just from the slides, the idea here is that you've got the character in-game, and it's got its own goals and motivations, and then you've got the player playing the game, and you've got your own goals and motivations. And so what you want to is build a bubble around both of these so that things that happen in-game that, that you want the player to do both make sense for the person who's at the controls and for the person inside the game. Yeah, that there's then, a parity between the two identities. Yeah. And then he pulls in a third bubble later on, which is also kind of interesting when trying to explain what's going on with something like you know, Uncharted 2, where really those identities are very different. In Minecraft, you are your avatar, whereas in Uncharted 2, there's clearly you're not the person that you're controlling. And there, so he brings in a third bubble, which is more the personal goals of the player playing the game. And so how Uncharted 2 succeeds by linking into kind of mythic themes. So we've all seen Indiana Jones, and we all know how that's supposed to go, and playing a game where we can be part of that excites us, totally aside from our goals of exploring within the game context, for example. Okay. On that note, I think we're talked out. (laughs) Uh, Thanks for having us. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. It was really nice Uh to talk to everyone again. Yeah. Yeah. I hope we can have any of you on soon. You're all great. Aww. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, all right, you can read David Carlton at his own blog, Malvesa Bianca. He's also co-creator and co-runner of the Vintage Game Club, where they play old games and discuss them, as well as co-creator of the VGHVI Video Games and Human Value Initiative. 
And he writes, features editor or game ranks, a frequent contributor to Gamer Melodico. Jorge Albor, with his partner Scott Jester, run the experiencepoint.net site and the affiliated podcast and moving pixels column at Pop Matters. Mm-hmm. And Chris Dolan, the editor in chief at Kill Screen. What more do you need to say? <laughs> thank you, thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Hey, traffic is not the be-all, end-all, because... Amen. (laughs) Uh, I get a lot of traffic, but unfortunately, a lot of it is, show us your boobs, so... (laughs) I I get that, too, all the time, and I'm so sick of it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just saying, sometimes quality is more important than quantity, you know? You're you're such a tease, Chris. (laughs) (laughs)